little story. Last Tuesday, I was on my way home from a trip to Massachusetts, down and back, and same day. Just having navigated through a very congested stretch of highway through Boston, a lot of you know what that's like, I was particularly frustrated with one driver. You know that guy that you keep passing and he keeps passing you and then he slows down in front of you and guy like that. So I came up alongside of his pickup to pass him and I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit and my annoyance. And I hear this little voice saying to me, hey Russ, why don't you just stop stewing over this guy and start praying for this guy? Pray for his life and his struggles, his family, his needs. Just pray for him. So I did. And I began to pray, realizing that like, just like any one of us, this person may have a whole host of issues, not to mention the driving issue, <laughs> in his life that he may be dealing with. And so I began to pray. And how do you pray for a stranger, right? And I'm praying all of these prayers. Lord, I don't know if he's struggling with finances. I don't know if he's going through a divorce. I'm not sure if he's got a prodigal child. Maybe he's struggling with an addiction. Maybe he has a sexuality problem. And he's struggling with that deep down inside. Maybe he's, maybe he's just on the verge of crossing the line of coming to know you. God, would you just please move in his life and meet his needs and bless his family. And so I went on and on and on. I found myself just losing myself in this prayer for this guy. And after a fair amount of time, I thought, well, maybe I should pray for the driver in front of him. And so I started to pray for that guy and for the driver of the garbage truck in front of that car and, and for the person driving the Subaru up ahead on my left. And then I started praying for every car on my side of the highway within view. And then I moved my attention to those driving in the opposite direction. And I realized it was bumper-to-bumper -bumper congestion as far as my eyes could see. And I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to pray for all those people. So I started, too many to count, I, I began to pray for them as a group which gave way to the fact that there was no way that I could possibly handle every single one of their individual needs represented on that side of the road. And that, in turn, caused me to recognize the incredible majesty of God our Father, who, in His omniscience, can handle every single one of those individual requests, personally, individually, and not only for those in the oncoming traffic, but literally in the entire state, the country, indeed the whole world. And immediately I was taken back by the sheer immensity of the task. And in my spirit, I worship God who not only hears every prayer, but answers every prayer in perfect harmony, in synergistic integration, so that as not to adversely disrupt or derail all the intersecting plans that he has for every single individual in the world, as well as me and to bring his perfect will to bear and all of that. And I suddenly realized again how complex and how immense prayer really is. And more importantly, how it's not all about me. 
and my petty selfishness. And I was completely humbled, totally awestruck. What an incredible God we have. As the psalmist put it, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. And that experience triggered the memory, believe it or not, of a segment in the movie Bruce Almighty. And if you haven't seen that movie, I'm not recommending that you do, but the fact is, is that it presents this Hollywood version of what might happen if God entrusted supernatural power to an ordinary human being. Bruce Nolan, played by Jim Carrey and a television reporter from Buffalo, New York. He rages against God after a series of mishaps. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, Bruce complained, summoned to an abandoned building, home of Omnipresence Incorporated. Bruce encounters God himself, in the form of Morgan Freeman, who has decided to let Bruce try to be God for a week to see if he can improve on matters. And of course, he uses this power capriciously, a magic genie he can command to clear path and traffic for his new sports car or to teach his dog to use the toilet correctly. He works revenge on fellow employees, all of these things. But one of the scenes in this movie that struck me was that when he tries to answer everybody's prayer. He hears thousands, millions of prayers in his head all at once. And that's just from the Buffalo residents. And he tries to deal with these, this blizzard of requests, and he answers yes to everyone who prays to win the lottery, thus creating 400,000 winners and diluting the grand prize to almost nothing. In short, Bruce Almighty learns an appreciation for the complexity of prayer as well as a new humility and sense of inadequacy. Humility and inadequacy. These are two great terms which should describe our approach to prayer. Is that right? Humility and inadequacy. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 8 again, if you would. We're going to finish up these two verses we started last week. Romans 8, 26 and 27. And when we read these verses, we immediately are thrust into dealing with the fact that we are inadequate to handle prayer. In the same way, Paul says, the Spirit who helps our weakness also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The key to our prayer dilemma, then, is not so much in the what, the where, the when, or the how, but the who. Remember, we said that last week, that the Spirit's assistance is the key to our prayers. And the reason is quite simple, because in our human frailty, we simply don't know how to pray effectively. But in partnership with the Holy Spirit, our prayers become effective and can accomplish much, James says. And as I said last time, getting this handhold on the Spirit's role in this area of our lives helps us tremendously to overcome our fear of praying, praying in public, saying wrong words, 
not knowing what to pray for or how to pray in difficult situations. It helps us to not fall prey to the discouragement when we don't see the answers to our prayers. And it replaces our anxiety over things that we have no control over with peace of mind. So the first thing we learn in this text is that we must learn to lean on the Spirit's help. It's one of the most overlooked aspects of the Spirit's ministry to us as believers. How does He assist us? Well, first of all, we, we learned last week that He disables our weaknesses. In verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. And we saw that he did this by supporting us in the midst of our infirmity. Look at what it says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. So the second way that he disables our weakness is that he sustains us in the midst of our ignorance. We don't know how to pray. We're weak about it, and we don't know how to do it. And let's face it, sometimes we just don't know exactly what to say, do we? And the Apostle Paul was no stranger to that frustration. When Paul wrote Romans 8.26, remember, as I pointed out last time, he didn't hesitate to include himself in the group. We don't know how to pray as we should, Paul says. Paul made his own mistakes. He didn't always know how best to pray. In fact, I mentioned last week that this week we were going to deal with a classic biblical text in which Paul, in his own personal experience, found an intensely confounding aspect of prayer that each of us struggle with, the frustration that we feel when our prayers go unanswered. Don't you feel frustrated when your prayers don't feel like they're being answered? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited, Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me, Paul says, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And this is the part that I want you to take note of. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When when God's will in that situation was finally revealed to Paul that he wasn't going to get the prayer that he wanted answered the way he wanted it, when his prayer went unanswered according to his desired outcome, the content of Paul's prayer seems to have changed drastically. God's answer to Paul's prayer was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And after that, Paul clearly changed his approach. If you follow further into the verses, you'll read, Therefore, Paul exclaims, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Notice the difference in his approach. Let me read it to you out of the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 goes like this. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer, these limitations that cut me down to size. Abuse, accidents, opposition, 
bad breaks. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, Moses was brought face to face with a very similar dilemma. Poised at the gate of the promised land near the end of his ministry, and as he addresses the children of Israel, Moses recounts his prayer and God's answer. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. Moses says, At that time, I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness in your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and the mighty works that you do? Now let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. Then, then Moses says to the children of Israel, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. How'd you like to have that answer? Moses wanted to go see the promised land, but because of what Moses did in reaction to the children of Israel's murmuring and grumbling, he disobeyed God. And God said, I'm going to bring you to the promised land, to the edge of it, but you're not going in. That must have hurt Moses deeply. And so when they get to the edge, Moses tries again, and he pleads with God, please let me go in. And, and God says, it's enough. I don't want to hear any more. Don't speak to me anymore about this issue. You see, our ignorance in prayer emphasizes our desperate need of a helper, especially when it concerns our personal desires. In light of that fact, it would be wise for us to heed these words of warning. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. As one man has written, if you bombard God with certain particular personal material requests, there is the possibility that he will let you have them and you will bitterly regret it. Mother Teresa once said, more tears are shed over answered prayer than unanswered prayer. God may not want you to win that $10 million jackpot. And he has good reason for it. It may be very well that he knows you can't handle it and it will ruin your life in short order. He may be keeping you from buying that new car for a reason. He may know that something is coming up in the days ahead and you won't be able to make the car payments. God may not want that child to be physically cured, because only he can see that not only that child, but many others will come to great faith in Jesus Christ through that infirm infirmity. See, check your motives for your personal requests when we pray to God. Because are they rooted in God's best interest or are they rooted in our own? So here's the dilemma which I asked you to meditate on last week. What would happen if all of your prayers were answered 
in the way that you desired them to be. Did you think about that one? Did you think hard on it? Did the exercise help you to realize anything? As Philip Yancey put it, most of us learn over time that some prayers prove better off unanswered. We have at least one example in the Old Testament that may be a bit enlightening. In Psalm 106, verses 14 and 15, again we read about the children of Israel in the desert. The psalmist writes, But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert, and He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. If you compare Psalm 78, 18, which is very uh, parallel to this, it says that in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire, and God gave it to them. And then they didn't desire it anymore. The message presents Psalm 106.15 in a way that is very applicable to contemporary society. It goes like this. He gave them exactly what they asked for, but along with it, they got an empty heart. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a short story entitled Prayer, which he wrote after reading about a shipwreck in the United States in which many, many children perished. And he wrote the story to explore the problem of unanswered prayer. In that story, Tolstoy asked the most provocative question. He said, could it be that unanswered prayer serves our own best interest? In other words, it's good for us? Instead of looking at unanswered prayer as the problem, Tolstoy ponders whether answered prayer might be the problem. Is it possible that unanswered prayer is a strange kind of gift? He posed the question. In his book, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer, Jerry Sitzer suggests that the fact that we pray does not in and of itself make us saints. For our prayers are often imbued with selfishness. When we pray, we pray not only as saints, but also as sinners. Is that right? Very much inclined to use prayer to advance our own selfish interests, even when we pray out of desperation. As strange as that may sound, answered prayer could actually exacerbate the very problem in us, namely sin, that God has acted in Jesus Christ to actually remedy now, to answer these kinds of prayers would be bad for us and unworthy for God. God, therefore, shows us mercy by not answering all of our prayers. If God did answer all of our prayers, he suggests, we would become corrupt without measure, praying as if prayer were like a credit card with no limits. Sitzer goes on to say, but if our prayers were answered, not some of them, but all of them, especially our very best and worthiest prayers, we would become monsters, far worse than Hitler or Stalin. At first, we would be silly like a little boy showing off a new toy that's the envy of the neighborhood. We would make trees fly in the air, drive our Volvos across the Mississippi, and turn the moon into green cheese. We'd do all these kinds, just like Bruce Almighty. 
There is likely no greater illustration of this corrosive nature of power, including spiritual power, than in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. A while ago, I came across an insightful analogy of Tolkien's exploration of this theme with the temptation that we would face if all of our prayers were answered according to our desires. If you know the story at all, Sauron, an evil sorcerer, forges 20 magical rings, three for the elves, seven for the dwarves, and nine for human beings. But he keeps one for himself, and this ring is the most powerful of all, and he controls all the others with it. The ring serves as a metaphor for supernatural power that intoxicates and perverts and destroys. No matter how well-intentioned, the person who possesses this one ring will eventually use it for evil purposes. And there appears to be no exceptions to that rule, not even among the best among them. Gandalf the wizard, Galadriel the elven queen, Aragorn the true king, they simply refuse to seize the ring because they recognize that their own weakness is very apparent and their susceptibility to corruption is very real. They choose to live in weakness and in humility, even to suffer defeat if they must, rather than risk the corruption that the power of the ring would cause. Ironically, this is what makes those characters so powerful in the story. What tempts the best among them, like Gandalf, is the desire to use the ring to accomplish good. And we would all want to do that, wouldn't we? Accomplish good. Have our prayers answered. We'd pray only good prayers. That becomes the real danger because however well-intentioned, the power of the ring would still worm its way into the heart and turn it toward evil. Why? Because our heart is desperately sick, isn't it? At one point, Frodo the Hobbit and the keeper of the ring says to Gandalf, a great and good wizard, you are wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? And Gandalf replies, no. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. Now, this is not by any means to suggest that prayer is like that ring, inherently evil. Frodo was commissioned to destroy the ring because it was corrupt. However good the motives of those who tried to use it, it is hardly the case that prayer is corrupt like that. Still, there is something dangerous about prayer when we wield it the wrong way. Or better to say, there is something dangerous about us once we receive answers to prayer. God answers prayer for our own good and for His glory. But what we could do with those answers to prayer could turn into something quite different, couldn't it? There is no powerful as wonderful and good as spiritual power. It is for that very reason that it is so terrible and dangerous, not because of what God does with it, but because of what we might do with it. Gerald Sitzer makes this personal observation. We usually think of ourselves to be the exception to the rule. He says, I know I do. I'm confident in my self-delusion that power would not corrupt me because I think I'm nearly always right, very wise, and so capable of wielding it. 
So if I had that power, I would use it responsibly, never mind the failures of everybody else. And we all think that way, don't we? But it's easy to be altruistic in theory when I am speculating about what I would do with the power if I had it. It's very hard to be altruistic in fact. And he asks the question, is there any exception to the rule? I can think of only one exception to the rule. Jesus Christ. Jesus was well aware of the potential danger of spiritual power and the only one who could have justified having it and using it. And yet throughout his earthly ministry, even he willingly limited his use of it, didn't he? He limited its use, choosing to suffer deprivation as a man willing to do only the will of God his Father. Amen? Even though he is Lord of the universe, Jesus faced humiliation, he faced suffering, he faced death, refusing to take advantage of the power that was rightfully his to pray himself out of it. Didn't he? He humbled himself to the point of being a servant to the point of death, death on a cross. Even as he approached the most intense and violent climax of his earthly ministry, his commitment to accepting his Father's plan endured to the end. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. That was Jesus' prayer. And though he added, yet not as I will, but as you will. Obviously, his prayer was not answered in the way that he would have desired that the cup may be passed from him, taken from him. Imagine for one moment if Jesus' prayer had been answered. His life would have been spared, ours doomed. Jesus deserved to have his prayer answered, no question about it. God was merciful, though, not to Jesus, but to us by refusing to answer the prayer of his own perfect and innocent son. Strange as it may sound, we need unanswered prayer. It's God's gift to us because it protects us from ourselves. If all of our prayers were answered in the way we wanted them to be, we would only abuse the power. Unanswered prayer protects us. It breaks us, deepens us, exposes us, and transforms us. Ironically, the unanswered prayers of the past, which so often leave us feeling hurt and abandoned and disillusioned, serve in the Father's hand as a refiner's fire that prepares us for the answered prayers of the future. If we're willing to look deep into the darkness of our own souls and persist in prayer, when there doesn't seem to be any reason to. The point of all of this and that we all need to realize is that when it comes to praying, we are ignorant of the details. Amen? We are so uninformed about the details of God's will. And we need to exercise caution in what we desire, don't we? You may recall country singer Garth Brooks' hit song, Unanswered Prayers, in which he relates a chance encounter he and his wife had with an old high school flame that he once had asked 
God so intensely to let him marry. And as they conversed and reminisced, it became apparent to him that had God answered his prayer, it would have been a terrible, terrible choice. Glancing at his wife, he suddenly realized that the greatest gifts in his life were the result of God not granting his prayers, but answering in a way that far exceeded his misguided longings and expectations. St. Teresa of Avila showed tremendous insight when she prayed, do not punish me, Lord, by granting that which I wish or ask. But God always answers prayer, doesn't he? It's not a question of unanswered prayer. It's just a question of answering the way we expect. God always answers prayer, but not the way we always expect. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, this is our comfort because God answers every prayer. For either he gives us what we pray for or he gives us something far better. Even though we don't know what or how to pray in any given situation, we can be thankful we have a helper who does, the Holy Spirit. He supports us in the midst of our infirmity. He sustains us in the midst of our ignorance. And thirdly here, he disables our weakness by speaking for us in the midst of our inability. Back to Romans chapter 8. End of verse 26, it says, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Even when we don't have words, the Spirit assists us in our prayer. He intercedes for us. His help is direct. It's personal. He is our personal go-between, our interpreter, the one who can constantly pleads our case for us. He intercedes on our behalf sometimes with groanings, Paul says, which cannot be expressed in words. I remember visiting a man who was dying of a terminal illness, and as his health began to deteriorate, his ability to speak also deteriorated to the point where he couldn't speak anymore. And eventually it got to the point where the only method of communication was a deep inward groan and sigh. And as this happened, I watched an amazing thing take place. His family, who were surrounding him, those who were closest to him, responded to those sighs, understanding exactly what he was communicating. No words, but they knew him. And they seemed to be able to distinguish the differences in the groans and responded accordingly with a touch or a cool drink of water or a gentle caress. You see, they knew. They knew. There were no words exchanged, but there was clear and comprehensive understanding. And you see, friends, words are not always necessary in prayer, are they? God can do without words because he knows the innermost thoughts of our hearts perfectly. There are times when we are simply at a loss for words. Either we cannot express them or there's nothing to say. We can only sigh from within. And you know what? God understands the inward groanings and the sighs of the Spirit within us. He does. 
This is one of the most comforting truths of the Spirit's ministry in our lives. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. That's what it says in verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's no secrets with him. Your heart and my heart are open books to God. Amen? He's there. He knows if you're a believer. Psalm 139, verse 4. The psalmist writes, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. That's pretty comforting if what's in your heart is pure. It's pretty unnerving otherwise, isn't it? As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that spill, what spills out of us is indicative of what's really inside of us. Matthew Henry said this, To a hypocrite, nothing is more dreadful than that God searches the heart, as it says in verse 27 here. To a sincere Christian, however, nothing is more comfortable. Whenever we pray God knows our deepest desires and our deepest motives behind them, we can't fool God, can we? Therefore, we ought always to adopt the closing words of Psalm 139 whenever we pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And then lead me in the everlasting way. That's a prayer that we should always pray. Amen? You see, prayer is not valid just because words fall from our lips, folks. The Lord describes sinful Israel as people who draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. It's not just about words that fall from our lips. Prayer must be rooted in who you are on the inside. And that's why we need the Spirit's assistance. We need His help. God, the Holy Spirit, understands exactly what's happening within us. And He, without words, in His own way of communicating, makes our appeals known to the Father. This nonverbal communication by the Spirit that, that Paul is talking about here with groans too deep for words is not, I submit to you, as some might suggest, a reference to speaking in tongues. That's not what this text is talking about. It's not about a heavenly prayer language here or any other kind of unintelligible type of speech. According to Paul, these groanings of the Spirit may not even be audible to us. Literally, the text says that they are unspeakable, too deep for words. Amen? Essentially, while we pray, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is continually assisting us by silently shaping our prayers and delivering them in perfect accordance with the will of the Father. And I am convinced that this is precisely what the Bible means when it says we need to be praying in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Jude 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. You see, prayer builds our faith. 
Amen? It keeps us looking to God. Without the Spirit's assistance, our prayers would be absolutely pointless. But by supporting us in our infirmity and sustaining us through our ignorance and by speaking for us in the midst of our inability, He disables our weakness completely. And that builds us up in the faith, doesn't it? Still, we need the Holy Spirit's assistance in yet another way, not merely to disable our weakness, but more importantly, to get us centered on God's will rather than on our will. And the only way to do that is by praying in the Spirit and allowing the Spirit's assistance to do it because he alone deciphers God's will. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The New Living Translation renders it this way, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. I like that. The intertrinitarian communication that goes on between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is beyond my comprehension. Is it beyond yours? But know this, nothing is hidden. Nothing's hidden. On occasion, when I send an email to somebody, I have gotten the message back, return mail, host unknown. You ever get that? That never happens when we're spiritually online. Never happens if you have the Spirit living in you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have perfect communication within, between themselves, and that is what is so incredible about our capacity for prayer. Because the Spirit knows what the Father desires, and the Son only seeks to accomplish what the Father desires. And because all three of them are one and live in us, James says... The effective prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. Amen? According to Romans 8, verse 34, mind you, Jesus is constantly interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. You see that right there? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who what? Also what? Intercedes for us. So Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And according to verse 27, the Spirit is continually interceding for us from within our hearts in perfect accordance with the Father's will. In other words, we have complete coverage. Jesus in heaven, Spirit in our hearts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in our hearts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in heaven all around us. Where are they anyway? Where is he anyway? Is it three? Is it one? Is it, am I confusing you? <laughs> Welcome to church. <laughs> How in the world can we lose is the point. The spirit, Spirit's interceding. The Son's interceding. God is hearing. It's all wrapped around one will. It's incredible. When we finally understand the Spirit's ministry in that light, our prayer life begins to take on a whole new confidence, doesn't it? We will know firsthand what Jesus meant when he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You understand what that means? 
What does it mean to ask something in Jesus' name? In my name means that which will bring glory to the Father. His will be done in my name. If you pray that way, it will be done. Amen? We are assured of God's answer when we pray according to his will. And the Spirit assists us in that. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the boldness we have in Christ's presence that if we ask God for anything that agrees with what he wants, he hears us. If we know he hears us every time we ask him, we know we have what we ask from him. That's 1 John 5, 14 through 15. That can only happen through the assistance of the Spirit. Any prayer that the Spirit produces in us is a prayer that will see results. Let me say that again. Any prayer that the Spirit produces in us is a prayer that will see results. It's got God's guarantee stamped all over it. Tony Evan comments this way. He says, God only does what is in his will. So if what you're asking is God's will, the Spirit is interceding for it on your behalf, and God is doing something even though you haven't seen the answer yet. But if you're asking outside of God's will, the Spirit has to change your request because it is illegitimate, right? But to change your request, guess what the Spirit has to do? He has to change you. And sometimes that can make you groan. So God is always doing something. He's either doing what you ask or he's doing what he wants done by changing you so you will want what he wants. But there is no time when God is not doing something in regard to our prayers. Is that right? It's like a puzzle, a very complex puzzle. One piece of a puzzle by itself doesn't look like much, does it? But plug it into the whole puzzle and you have a very pretty picture. And that's why, this is beautiful, I love this part. And that's why verse 28 is such a comfort and a confidence builder. You know verse 28, right? Everybody repeats it all the time. And it's such a pious platitude most of the time. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. But did you ever look at verse 28 in light of verses 26 and 27? You can't get to verse 28 without going through verse 26 and 27, amen? The Spirit's assistance is the key to our prayers. He disables our weakness. He deciphers God's will. And out of all of that, as I concluded last week, we can develop a new depth of understanding and desire to pray freely and boldly and simply and to make prayer our lifestyle rather than an event. And that's not only what we long for, folks, I submit to you, but what God desires for us as well. Let me leave you with this thought-provoking question. I left you with one last week. I'll leave you with one this week. Is prayer your normal routine? Would you consider it your lifestyle? 
That means, again, quoting Tony Evans, it should be abnormal not to pray. Is that the way it is in your life and in mine? If you pray abnormally, don't be surprised if you hear from God abnormally. If you pray every now and then, you're going to hear from God every now and then. Paul says prayer should be so important that not to pray is the exception. But we have it backwards, don't we? Prayer interrupts our regularly scheduled life, regularly scheduled life, doesn't it? So much so that I have to set my watch for one o'clock to beep so that I pray. One, one, one. Cancel out the one, one, one. Forget it. You shouldn't need one, one, one. We should be doing 24-7, right? Even in our sleep, we should be at prayer because the Spirit is doing it inside of us and the Spirit never sleeps, amen? He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. You see, it should be that not praying interrupts our schedule. But we basically view prayer as something that intrudes into our day. If we were to give prayer the importance that God gives prayer, we would see prayer as our normal routine and the other stuff that we do as interruptions to prayer. Think about that one for a little while. And then Colossians 4, verse 2, comes into being. Why Paul wrote it. Devote yourselves, he says, to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. In other words, and this is what I'll leave you with, make prayer your lifestyle. Make it your lifestyle because you've got all the power of the Holy Spirit within you to bring it about. 